0: The skies they were ashen and sober, the leaves they were crisped and sear, the leaves they were withering and sear. It was night in the lonesome October of my most immemorial year. It was hard by the dim lake of Auber, in the misty mid-region of Weir. It was down by the dank tarn of Auber, in the ghoul-haunted woodland of Weir. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your Call of Cthulhu live-action role-playing speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. In this episode, we're finally putting the Z in ATOS here with A Night in the Lonesome October by Roger Zelazny, which was originally published in 1993. And this book won a Patreon vote, though it only just barely Made it. It beat out The Terror by Dan Simmons by only one vote, and then the Caitlin R. Kiernan novel, The Dry Salvages, came in third. And of course, I would have loved to do any of those books, but A Night in the Lonesome October holds a special place in my memory. I first read this book during the Halloween season of 1998 when I was in the army. It was prominently displayed in my local library, and the cover is awesome. It's a collage of all the greatest hits of horror, and I just couldn't resist it as soon as I saw it. But this also meant that it was the first book that I read in the apartment I had just moved into with some other soldiers, an apartment that later turned out to have a ghost of its own. But that is a story for another time, and maybe a story for another podcast. And I love this book, of course. It was perfect for the season, and it really scratched that Halloween itch for me. And so the next summer, I binged the entirety of Zelazny's sprawling saga, The Chronicles of Amber, which is another set of books, or at least the first book of which I would also really love to revisit here on ATOS. But we've got this book in front of us now, so let's get into it. Let's get into A Night in the Lonesome October. And let's start with the big picture here. This novel is a love letter to the founding fictionalists of horror. And Zelazny's even dedicated the book to them. And here's what he writes. To Mary Shelley, Edgar Allan Poe, Bram Stoker, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, H.B. Lovecraft, Ray Bradbury, Robert Block, Albert Payson Terhoon, and the makers of a lot of old movies. Thanks. And what Zelazny has done here in this book is to take characters and elements from these writers he's just dedicated the book to and mash them up into a single story. And that's explicit for the first half of this list because their works were out of copyright by the time Zelazny wrote this book. Uh, you know, or in in the case of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Zelazny was able to cleverly avoid a copyright issue. Uh, but for the more recent writers, such as Bradbury and Block, he, he's made more of an homage to the mood of their work than to specific elements from them. And we'll get into who these characters are and what they are up to in just a moment. But of course, we also have to acknowledge that the title itself comes from Yululame, a poem by Edgar Allan Poe, which supplied our first ever cold open. And I I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I don't know if we'll make a habit of that, but that was a lot of fun for me. Okay, so that is the thematic gimmick at the heart of the novel. But Zelazny employs a structural gimmick as well. The book is called A Night in the Lonesome October, and he really makes this a story about October, and he does this by giving us 31 chapters, one chapter for each day and they're titled by the date so you could read this throughout the month of October by reading just one chapter a day and the chapters range anywhere from 2 to 20 pages with most of them being under 6 pages and the the longer chapters only appearing near the end of the month when the story is reaching its climax and this is something people do ritually every October and i have to say i think it's a great idea i don't know that i'll ever have space for it in my life given the the reading load of of this podcast network but i do think that's an awesome idea and in fact if that's something you do i would love to hear about your experience with that. Well, those are the gimmicks. So, let's get into the plot. And I suppose this is also something of a gimmick really. What's going on here is basically a live action role-playing game of the call of Cthulhu, you know, except for the part where it's real and it's deadly serious. The characters are on opposing sides in a battle to open a portal for H.P. Lovecraft's old ones or, or elder gods to return to our world and radically alter it according to their whims. Some of the characters are actually trying to make this happen, and they're called openers for obvious reasons, while the closers are actively trying to prevent it. But the game has rules, and the game has customs. First, this game is not unique. In fact, it happens regularly, but Only when there is a full moon on Halloween, which happens only three or four times each century. And some of the players are are veterans of this game. And by the way, the characters do all refer to this as a game and to themselves as players. This is a real big part of what Zelazny is doing here. Another feature of the game is that the players don't announce which side they're on until the very end. And Figuring out who's on which side beforehand is a big part of the preparations for the characters, and, and really, it's it's most of the plot of the book. But it's also always not clear who is a player and who is a civilian, which is also a big part of the plot. The game board is the real world. I mean, it is a LARP after all. But the location changes every time, and the center of the action is a sacred place that has a strange geometrical relationship to the home bases of each of the players, And that action will occur on Halloween when the openers go there to try to open the gate and the closers try to thwart them, each using a a special wand. And there are other tools that the players can use as well, and and these have to be gathered every time the game begins anew. They, they, They can't be preserved over the decades and centuries. And this is the other thing that the players are up to during the month leading up to Halloween here. All right, so that is the game itself. So now let's get to the real fun, the characters of this book. These are largely drawn from the classics of horror literature, though some of them are actually historical figures and and others are more archetypes than than any specific character. Our focal point, though not actually our protagonist, whom we'll meet in a little bit, our focal point is Jack the Ripper, who is going to turn out to be a good guy. We're definitely on the side of the closers in this game, by the way. There is also a character based on Rasputin, though he's not actually called that here. And those are the two characters who are based on historical figures. So from literature, we get Sherlock Holmes, though he's only called here the great detective to avoid that copyright issue. And there's Victor Frankenstein and his monster as well, with with Frankenstein only called here the good doctor. There is also Larry Talbot, who is a werewolf. And Larry Talbot is the name of the character from the 1941 film The Wolf Man, which is probably the real origin of of most of our contemporary werewolf lore. And in the end, it is gonna turn out, actually, that none of these people are playing the game, but they feature prominently in the story. And of course, as there must be, there is Dracula. And then we have the archetypes. There's a witch, and to be clear, she is a sexy witch, so I guess Elasni was kind of a a trendsetter here. Uh, There's an evil priest. And there's a druid. Now, Zalesny doesn't always spell this out. and In fact, he never spells it out. Dracula is never Dracula here. He's only the Count. And Jack the Ripper is only ever Jack. And Holmes is only the great detective. It's only Larry Talbot who is called by his name. And, And so a big part of the joy of reading A Night in the Lonesome October is in catching the illusions and picking up on the clues to figure out who everyone is and also what's going on. But that's still not all the features of this book. This is a first-person narrative, and it is told to us by Jack the Ripper's dog, Snuff. But he's not merely a dog. He's a familiar. He's a special and insentient animal companion, and everyone in the game has one. And the game world that we encounter in the book is really the world of these familiars. These familiars have a community of their own, even while being loyal to their companions. And most of Snuff's narrative is about these familiars helping each other solve mysteries and and trading information with each other. I mean, the book is mostly animals talking to each other, and mostly it's snuff hanging out with the cat, Greymalk, who is the witch's familiar. And all of this derives from Albert Payson Terhun, who wrote a lot of books about dogs, and whom Zelazny really admired and is right there in the dedication to this novel. All right, that was a lot about the setup, and that's really the bulk of what I want to say here in the recap, actually, but I'll mention a few actual plot points before we get into the next segment. First, the good guys are going to win at the end, right? But the plot has to build up to us feeling like the bad guys might actually have a chance at winning here. There are a series of murders. Some players are killed by other players here. And Snuff is abducted, and he's nearly killed. Frankenstein's monster gets loose a few times, of course, and the evil uh, priest—evil vicar is really what I should say—the evil vicar is going to offer up a human sacrifice to aid with the opening of the gate— and this turns out actually to be the most important plot element because it is actually what Sherlock Holmes and the Wolfman are doing here. They're both investigating the kidnapping of the young woman who will be sacrificed and are trying to rescue her, which, of course, they do at the very last minute, just as she's about to be killed. But in the end the the closers are still on their back feet because they're outnumbered. It's only Dracula and Jack the Ripper on the good guys side, which of course is you know supposed to be funny. Jack the Ripper it turns out isn't actually a serial killer. He in fact is is cursed and he has a magic knife and so he's just misunderstood and is in fact genuinely a good guy. And Dracula, although he's an evil dude in the world, likes the world just the way it is and doesn't want to be replaced by Lovecraft's monsters. There's there's definitely some metafictional commentary there about the development of horror as a genre. And by the way, something that really struck me about this moment is that this is precisely something that Spike says in the second season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in exactly the same circumstance, by the way. And Joss Whedon is a massive alluder and a massive homager And maybe most of all in the second season of Buffy, which also cribs from Robert E. Howard, as we saw a few episodes ago. And I don't have any doubts that Whedon read this book when it came out early in his career. I mean, really just a few years before he would have written those lines. And speaking of illusions and homages, there's a big chunk of this book that takes place in Lovecraft's least understood and probably least liked work. Uh, that's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which I would love to cover on Other Signs someday, but, but that would be a serious commitment, as this is actually his second longest work. Uh, in fact, it's even longer than At the Mountains of Madness. All right. I got distracted there. I think that happens uh, anytime I think about Spike. In fact, I think getting distracted is uh, something that happens anytime anybody thinks about Spike. But we can finish up the recap by saying that in the end, the good guys win, but not really through any action of their own. There is a rat named Bubo, and that is a, a great joke. I mean, you know, if jokes about the bubonic plague can be great, There's a rat named Bubo. He was actually a civilian animal who was pretending to be a familiar in order to just pal around with the actual familiars, and also because it was a good way to get food. It's a very clever animal, this Bubo. But when he was found out, he decided to just keep hanging around. And of all the players and all the familiars, he wound up with the best knowledge of the game. And he realized that the bad guys were going to outnumber the good guys, and were probably going to win... So he switched the wands when no one was looking so that the bad guys would actually be using the closing wand. Now at the last minute, Snuff realizes this. And so he facilitates this and lets the bad guys actually defeat themselves by closing the gate instead of opening it. And that's how the plot ends. But we do get a little bit of a coda here at the end of the the, the game when some of the players go off to get a, a, a drink, even though they were on the opposite sides of this, this contest here in the game. And so... Really, it's a happy ending. So let's zip right into our next segment. The biggest thing that Zelazny is doing here, of course, is making allusions to other literature. And of course, this is really my jam. It is my favorite thing in literature. And it is no surprise that our other shows on the network cover Gene Wolfe and Neil Gaiman, who are highly elusive and who are extraordinarily, exceptionally self conscious about their place in the long history of literature and the long history of of storytelling. And Zelensky doesn't really hold back here, or in Amber, for that matter. And even the central conceit of the story, the conceit that the characters in our favorite books or in our pop cultural landscape in general really exist in the world and are, in fact, engaged in a cosmic struggle between the forces of good and evil, that central conceit just dials this up to 11 It's not just that they're having adventures. It's that we ourselves are dependent on the outcome of their actions, that they are fundamental to our lives and to our world, even if we aren't paying any special attention to them. Zelazny also, though, shows us how these fictional worlds are worlds unto themselves, even as they are a massive part of ours. The world of this game is special, something that occurs only three or four times a century and is different each time, though it also has a long continuity. It exists at the edge of our world. In this case, it's at the outskirts of London, and only some of us can interact with it. But each of the players really comes from his or her own fictional world as well. And even now, in the game, they maintain something of their separateness, something of their uniqueness. The good doctor, Victor Frankenstein, who isn’t even playing the game, though he is here in the game area, Frankenstein lives in a house above which a perpetual storm rages, even when the weather is nice nearby. Every story is a world of its own, a place with its own rules and its own properties, a place we can visit sometimes and which will remain constant even if we have changed and perhaps see it differently than we did previously. And I love this subtle idea that Zelazny packs away here into this story. And entering the world of story, entering the world where the stories we love are real, that changes us. And here in this book, In A Night in the Lonesome October, this is quite literally true for the familiars, for these animal companions. And these companions really represent us, the, the readers. The, the players themselves are something above us. They're archetypes. They're closer to the platonic ideal than we are. But the familiars, Snuff and, and Graymulk and, and the others, they're like us. They're the characters that we can identify with and relate to. And by existing in the world of the story, they are changed. Their sentience derives from their contact with the world of the game, the the world of this story. Zelazny even gives us a subplot about a familiar who wants to leave, who, who wants to give up this change and go back to the real world. And this gives us a glimpse into the fictional rules of this process, and it turns out that the squirrel had been made into a familiar by capturing its shadow, right? A clear allusion to Peter Pan here, another great story about the intersection of stories and real life. And this is just great, this notion that leaving the real world for the world of the story requires us to leave behind our shadows, and maybe really to leave behind our material selves such that we don't even cast shadows anymore. It's a great metaphor for how we immerse ourselves in stories, but also a great metaphor for what they do for us. But it's also dangerous to enter into the world of story. It can change you, it can change you in ways that you don't really want. and I like that Zelazny shows us that part of it too. At the same time, dangerous those stories are, they can bring us together. There's something we can form communities around. Indeed, I would suggest that all communities require a story, a story about themselves, a story that tells people they have something in common. But of course, we also self-consciously form communities around our love of stories in general, like this book club, for example, or around specific stories. Right? These are our specific fandoms that we're a member of. And this is most evident to us in the community of the familiars, who are mostly friends with each other, even as they know that they will end up on opposite sides of the game, and even as the players themselves are killing each other. We see the familiars brought together by their immersion in the game world, by their commonality as companions to the characters in the story, and we see them helping each other out and enjoying each other's company despite that. Much of the book is concerned with the friendship between Snuff and Greymalk, which isn't challenged when they discover that they will definitely be on opposite sides during the supernatural combat at the end. They save each other's lives, they share secrets, and so on, and all throughout the book. And this isn't limited only to the familiars, I should say, though that is the community that we mostly see in this story— Jack the Ripper and Jill the Witch, a closer and an opener, develop a strong friendship over the course of the game. And even at the end, we see that they are going to continue that friendship without the game, that their friendship now transcends the story that brought them together in the first place. And there's even a little anecdote that Jack tells about the time a few centuries ago when none of the players could figure out the location where the gate was going to be opened. And so everyone just went and had an awesome dinner together as a bunch of friends. Now, I don't think it will surprise you that this really resonates with me. I mean, this whole podcast network is my friends and I talking about stories we love and trying to build a larger community of listeners around that love of those stories and and around the love of story in general. This is something I believe in. I believe very deeply in the power of stories. And what Zelazny does here is just marvelous for me. And I, I, I I just love it. This is a book that thrilled me. My heart was racing every moment. All of this, of course, is the biggest strength of the book. This is what drew me to it in the first place, and it's what kept me turning the pages as well, and it's what made me want to read the book again 20 years later. But something that I've neglected up to this point in my discussion of Zelazny's elusiveness is how funny he is. A lot of the allusions he makes are jokes. They're puns or they're knowing winks at the audience. He borrows a lot of lines from other works and then modifies them to suit his purposes in a way that is meant to make us all laugh, or at least not, you know, knowing that we're in on the joke. Now, I will not compile a list of them, though. I was very much tempted to do that, but I will give you my favorite. And this is when Snuff, the narrator, uses the phrase, exit pursued by furies. Now this is a modification of that very famous stage direction from Shakespeare's play The Winter's Tale in which it's exit pursued by bear and I will laugh at basically any version of this joke but I especially love that here it's the furies it's it's the ancient greek gods of hounding vengeance In part, this is because it it harkens back to some of the deepest roots of our literary heritage, but also because the Furies themselves are kind of the first horror characters in that heritage. They're terrifying and malevolent and out to get you for something your father did and that you can't possibly undo. So it's a great joke, and it connects Elasny to to multiple traditions, and I, I, I loved it. The other strength of this book is that it's illustrated by Gane Wilson, the award-winning cartoonist of The New Yorker and The the National Lampoon, and, and also a, a number of his own books of weird fiction illustrations. And I do want to say that as I'm recording this, though it will be years later only that you're hearing this, but that for me anyway, very recently, Gane Wilson just passed away. And that's a, a tremendous loss to, to all of us. But these illustrations are fantastic, and there's one illustration for each chapter, so there's 31 of them, and they really are great. They really add something to the pleasure of reading this book, and they also are often quite funny, in fact. So, in the end, in all, I think that this is a great book that is well worth reading, especially if you enjoy metafiction and enjoy jokes about literary history as much as I do, or really even half as much as I do, I think. But I do think that there's a big weakness to this book, and and that is the story itself. We don't really know what's going on until the end, and, and certainly piecing that together is part of the fun of the book, but that comes at a cost. A lot of the book feels digressive because we don't really understand what is even motivating any of these characters, and not having a motivation makes it hard for us to care about the story. I mean, I like Snuff and I wish him well, but since I don't know what he's trying to accomplish, it's hard to really cheer for him when he wins. It's also hard to groan for him when he loses. There's, uh, there's an emotional distance to the story because of these choices. And this was a choice, right? This is something Zelazny did on purpose, and I just don't think it works very well. But some of this also stems from the gimmick of having a chapter for each night in October, right? This means that Zelazny needs 31 distinct narratives, and so he often has to resort to digressions or, or side quests, maybe we'll, we'll call them in the parlance of uh, online RPGs. Uh, he has to resort to side quests in order to meet that quota, and I think that takes away from the main plot for the most part. But this is something of a, a kill your darlings moment in which I do think the book would have been better served by getting rid of one of the gimmicks at the heart of it, something that is always hard to do. And of course, especially for people who do like to ritually read this book every Halloween or, you know, at least every once in a while around Halloween time, uh, they would lose that element of it. And this is a big selling point of the book. Well, that brings my review to a close. A short review this month. I do hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs and also the strengths and the weaknesses that I focused on, but especially on what I left out. And I do think that it would be fun to catalog the illusions in the book and, you know, the puns and so on. And we could talk about our favorite illusions and about our favorite characters as well. I would love to have that conversation. But I would also love to take a cue from Zelazny and write our own fan fiction along these lines, or or at least make some lists of characters that we would include in our own version of this kind of story. Who are the characters that matter to you, and and what story would you tell with them if you matched them all up together? This is a conversation we can have on the forum, and I would read any fan fiction you wanted to send to us as well. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at gl McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next up, we're going to be doing something really exciting, something new. We're going to be reading our very first YA title, our very first young adult title, and that is going to be Hannah Goodhart and the Guardian of Time, written by C. Michael Morrison. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.